Good morning, everyone. Uh, so our scripture reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 23. And there's all these long names, and so I didn't want to have to stumble through them, so I got some other people to read Matthew 1. Sorry. We've got some willing readers here. So if you wouldn't mind, stand um, and in honor of God's Word. And you can turn to page 807 if you're using the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And Faith Hollister and Daniel Ho and Lydia Brown are going to read our scripture reading for this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Jerubbabel, and Jerubbabel the father and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, her, to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thank you, guys. You may be seated, and the children, um, four through kindergarten, are dismissed for Children's Church if they haven't gone already. 
All right, would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time of the year. We thank you for the reminders and the uh, prods to focus on Jesus, to focus on the incarnation, to focus on why he came and what it all means for us, to focus on who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us through the incarnation of Christ. We worship our Savior this morning, and we are so thankful for his willing condescension to take on flesh and blood and live the life that we have failed to live and to die the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins so that we can be reconciled to you. We can have peace with you, that we can have relationship with you, that we can have hope beyond this life that is so often like a valley of tears. And so even though this is for some of us, maybe, the most wonderful time of the year, we are also aware that this is a painful time for many among us for all kinds of reasons, grieving the loss of loved ones, whether very recent, like the Barmores, Lord, we pray for your comfort and your peace, your strength, your nearness to be so real to them now. But also those who have lost loved ones in the past and these holidays are reminders of the loss and the pain is almost fresh and new again. Maybe the pain of not having family or friends like we would long to have to enjoy a holiday like this with is kicked up at this time. Loneliness. So Lord, would you please minister your grace and peace to all of us, regardless of where we're at, regardless of what we're struggling with, what we're Rejoicing over, I pray that we would fix our gaze on Jesus this morning and through the remainder of this holiday season and into 2018. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, so that we can run the race that's set before us, even if it takes us through the valley of the shadow of death, even if it takes us through valleys of all kinds of lack and loss. I pray that we would know that you're with us and that we would not fear and that we would know the hope and the joy that only you can bring. So I pray that you would pour out that hope and joy and grace and love on us this morning as we consider your word, as we consider the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We've got good news and I pray that we would celebrate it, that we would enjoy it 
here together this morning. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Christmas, it's like the most sentimental, consumeristic time of the year. Turns a lot of people off. Maybe it turns you off. Maybe sentimental just doesn't, it just doesn't resonate with you. You know, this weary world filled with suffering and pain, your life filled with suffering, pain, sorrow, disappointment, minor key seems to fit better with, with your life than, you know, some of the jingles of Christmas. Or consumeristic, like, come on, aren't we tired of this yet? I mean, good grief how much traffic there is in northern Delaware, like trying to go north on 202 or down to Newark, like the mall area is just a zoo. It never satisfies. Like, when are we going to learn? So Christmas, I mean, come on. Can we just fast forward and get on with the new year? So maybe that's you. Or maybe you're kind of on the other side. Like, you love sentimental. And, you know, you probably don't broadcast it, but you love the shopping, too. You're, like, out there at 5 a.m. Or I guess you can go at, like, 12.01 a.m. now for Black Friday and get it started right. So maybe you're tempted to buy in too much to the typical American narrative at Christmas. So Hallmark movies and snow globes all the way, baby. That's you. I don't know. There's probably other better sentimental. Yeah, whatever. So you get sucked in, shopping frenzy, the stuff. So whether you're turned off or you love the sentimentality and consumerism of Christmas, you've got to admit that, I hope that you'll admit, that it's really ironic that Christmas is characterized by those two things, sentimentality and consumerism. The advent, the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation is the most unsentimental and unconsumeristic, non-consumeristic event in human history. I mean, sentimentality, listen to Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, equal with God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, used to his own advantage, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Sentimentality? Consumeristic? Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Christmas is way grittier and raw and practical and real than the typical seasonal sentiment. And it's way more wonderful and life-giving than any earthly gifts can produce. So if if you're, you know, in the ditch on the one side longing for the sentiment and, you know, trying to fill the holes with stuff, if you wish that the world was just soft and warm and full of warm fuzzies and, you know, eggnog or whatever, like you're going to be disappointed. 
The incarnation is as raw and real and honest and shocking and scandalous as it gets. Or if you're in the ditch and you're annoyed at the sentiment and you put Scrooge to shame with your criticism of the gift, buying and giving, if you've written off Christmas, then you may have bought a bill of goods too. Because Christmas is as generous and lavish and joyful and hope-giving as it gets. So the incarnation will actually keep us out of both of the ditches. The beginning of the gospel storyline in the beginning of the New Testament is both shockingly realistic and wonderfully hopeful and generous and life-giving. And it all starts, of all things, with a genealogy. What's up with that? (laughs) Why the genealogy? Like, why take up space in the Bible? And why in the world choose that passage for Christmas Eve service? Well, I hope you see before we're through here that there is gold hidden in these verses, even though we oftentimes just kind of blow through it, like I can't even pronounce half those names, you know, so let me just get on. But really, if we just do a little bit of digging, there's gold there. So let's start at the beginning, at the Genesis, look at Matthew 1, 1. And there's a little outline in the bulletin if that helps, and their points will be up on the screen as well. So... The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that little phrase, the book of the genealogy, it's a good translation. But we actually miss something that would have been obvious to the first readers for whom Greek was, you know, their common language. The book of the genealogy is Biblos Genesus. Do you hear that second word? Genesus, if I change the... Emphasis a little bit. Genesis, Genesis, Gen- Genesis. Okay? Any bells going off? The book of Genesis? So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there was a translation into Greek that would have been available to first century followers of Jesus called the Septuagint. The title of the book of Genesis is this word. So what? <laughs> Well, the beginning of the book of Genesis, the book of origins, what's it all about? It's about the fact that God created. He created us in his image, uniquely different from the animals. In fact, we were created, Adam and Eve, first parents, created to rule and subdue and cultivate the earth as God's vice regents. He created us to reflect his glory like moons to the sun, Reflect his glory and be fruitful and multiply and then fill the earth with his glory. He also created us for relationship with him and with each other. He created us for love. So how are we doing? How are we doing at that? Not so good. God's arch enemy slithered in, tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness, to try to find satisfaction outside the boundaries that God had drawn for them. And what were those boundaries like? There was one rule, huge playground, lots of freedom, one rule. And the oldest line in the book is maximize the restriction, minimize the freedom, doubt the goodness of God, cosmic killjoy, he's holding out on you. 
Well, they bought the lie. They plunged the whole human race into a tailspin. Guilt, shame, hiding, lying, blame shifting, manipulation, domination, selfishness, pride, murder, idolatry, on and on and on. It all has its genesis there, sadly. So even though this world is beautiful and amazing, I mean, have you ever seen like those Planet Earth movies? Like this is a crazy, magical, wonderful place, right? So much beauty. But what's beautiful are the vestiges of God's initial creative wisdom and power, what he declared good, good, very good. But what have we done with it? We have filled the earth not with his glory, but with attempts at promoting ours. We've filled the earth with idols and injustice and turmoil and opportunism. We've polluted this pristine earth. We've polluted it in every sense of the word. So what's signaled here from the beginning of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus Christ is that with his coming, a new creation is in the works. A new beginning. So God the Father, through God the Son, in the power of God the Holy Spirit, is going to make all things new. He's going to remake the world. So the intended connotations of this beginning are really good news. We've wrecked this world, wasted it, polluted it, filled it with idols, but the same God who created it, good, 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 very good, is going to recreate it by his grace. So we're actually studying through 2 Corinthians right now as a church, taking you know, a break here for the holidays. Um, we're in chapter 4, but in chapter 5, there's this wonderful verse, 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. So this new creative work that, that God is doing through Christ, it happens one person at a time. It's not the creation of a new world yet. It's the creation of a new people one heart at a time. So Matthew's going to go on to give an account of the life and teachings of Jesus, but the thing that gets the most ink is the death of Jesus. He came to die in the place of sinners to take the fall for us. So to absorb in himself the just punishment for our sin, for trashing his world with our selfishness, and our pride. So we've failed. We've failed to love God with all of our heart. We've failed to love our neighbor as ourself. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve eternal death, separation from God. We're guilty. We cannot atone for our sins. We need a Savior. And here we have one, the most perfectly qualified Savior. In fact, the genealogy, that's kind of the point to show you his qualifications. So he's fully God, so he's able to save us, and he's fully human, he's able to stand in for us, to take our place, to be our representative and our substitute. Only he's qualified to be the mediator between God and humankind, to bring us together and reconcile us. So that's, now that he's come and died, 
Now that he's rose from the dead, conquering death, vindicating all the claims that he made when he rose from the dead, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So when you trust Jesus as your Savior, the Bible uses the language of being in Christ. Remember, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, you're united with him. So he died in your place, the death that you deserve, I deserve. Your old, messy, sinful life died with him, was buried with him. He bore your sin and its punishment. So the old you is dead and gone. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not only that, we're alive together with Christ, the Bible says. You've been raised to newness of life. You're reborn when you become a Christian. You're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So where selfishness once ruled, Christ-like servant-heartedness has been planted and is growing. Where pride once, once saturated our soul, Christ-like humility is coming to life. Where you once were lust's lackey, slave, love and contentment are gaining traction. They're gaining control. So that's what Jesus came to do, to accomplish a new creation. Old things passing away, behold, new things have come. So isn't it great that the first words of Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus are words that signal a fresh start? All around us, everything is broken. You know, anybody? Bob Dylan, come on. Somebody, somebody. Just making sure. Okay, go look that one up later. Bob Dylan, everything's broken. Okay, so everything's broken. But this Savior is going to be about new beginnings, second chances, and fixing, remaking, healing people. So this Emmanuel, God with us, is going to specialize in remaking broken people, renovating broken relationships. So isn't this what we need? So what newness... Does Jesus want to breathe into your life in 2018? So if you're here, if you're not a Christian, you can actually be made new this morning. You can turn from your old ways, your sin, trying to be your own master. You can trust in Jesus today. You can walk out of here in newness of life. You got questions? Happy to talk to you afterwards. Grab these books. They'll help. For those of us who are Christians, what areas of your life do you need renewal? How might Jesus revive you if you ask him? It's a new beginning, a new creation that he came to accomplish. Let me just encourage you as we end this year and head into a new one, regardless of what you think about resolutions and whatever else, take some time today. Plan a good block of time this week to get alone with Jesus and ask him to shine the spotlight on the area or the areas in your life that he wants to make new. So verse 1 continues. <laughs> Don't worry. We're, we're going to just... 
get a few nuggets from this passage. We're not going to walk through it, you know, phrase by phrase. Um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. <laughs> it's a title, okay? Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah, the Mashiach in the Old Testament, primar- primarily a designation for the anointed king, okay? King over God's people. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this is what we would expect. I mean, this Jesus, he's got the right pedigree. He's the son of David, which means he's the promised and expected king. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment of the covenant promise that was given to David. And David, sadly, was a disappointment. Even though he was a great king, plenty of failures that we're all aware of. So 2 Samuel 7 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who's going to do that? Well, here, the Messiah, son of David. He's also the son of Abraham, the great patriarch through through whom God promised to bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's the son of Abraham. It's good news. It's what we'd expect. But the nature of this king, the nature of his kingdom, and the means of entrance into it turns out to be surprising and shocking as we continue on. So point number two, the outside-in kingdom. Did you notice that there are some surprising characteristics, some shocking characteristics even, of this genealogy? You notice there's five women mentioned? So maybe that doesn't seem weird to us because, you know, at least there's more equality in our day relative to the first century. But it would be really surprising in the first century. In the ancient Near East, Jesus' time, lineage was traced through the fathers. And yet here are several women in the genealogy. That just didn't happen. So this is actually a countercultural statement. Do you see them? There's five of them. Did you catch them all? Tamar. We'll touch on them in a minute. Okay. So it's surprising. It's a countercultural statement. It is honoring these certain women as the ancestresses of Jesus, the Messiah. So this actually is saying something about who our king is. He honors women. And the Gospels are filled with episodes where women, who were often marginalized, We're lifted up and honored. Jesus is no chauvinist. Any amens among the men, at least? I don't know. So the first one is Mary. Well, actually, she's the last one in the list, but the mother of Jesus? How about later on in Matthew's gospel, the woman with the alabaster flask of expensive ointment, she pours it on Jesus. Everyone's indignant, like, oh, what a waste. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Okay, shut up, Judas. You know, we know what you're really thinking. But Jesus says, why do you trouble the poor woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus is lifting up women. So he wasn't afraid to speak to women of questionable character who had been shunned by polite society. Remember the woman at the well? There were not a few. There were quite a few prostitutes who found cleansing, a new and fresh start by trusting and following Jesus. He welcomed them. And then who was it of his followers who were standing there who had the guts to stand there when Jesus was crucified? It was women. Where were the dudes? They were scared and they scattered. Who was it that Jesus first appeared to after his resurrection? It was the women, even though at that time their testimony was not considered valid in a court of law. So we could go on multiplying examples, but there's this surprising wrinkle in here that Jesus' genealogy has five women included. It, It actually gets even better. These aren't just your average or above average Israelite women that we might expect, you know, impressive genealogy. They're not just gender outsiders. Some are also also ethnic outsiders or racial outsiders, we could say. Look at the first woman mentioned, verse 3, Tamar. Go read Genesis 38 later today. Talk about unsentimental. Tamar was most likely a Canaanite, a pagan outsider. Or how about the second woman, Rahab? She was from Jericho, also a Canaanite. Canaanites were wicked people. God was driving them out of the promised land when Joshua was leading through, you know, promised land. Jericho's the first to fall. So they, they had filled that land with wickedness and idolatry. So there was no positive associations with Canaanites. And here, there are two already in the genealogy of Jesus. Maybe that's why the end of the book of Matthew is go into all the nations and make disciples. Maybe a little foreshadowing there. Ruth is the next woman. She was a Moabite. I mean, talk about bad connotations with Moabite women in the Bible. You do not want to marry a Moabite. Like, look out. So these women were from the wrong ethnic group. It's almost like these women are a who's who of the enemies of God. But maybe that's the point. Maybe this new beginning, this new creation that Jesus is inaugurating is all about God loving his enemies and making them his friends and bringing outsiders in. So we've seen gender outsiders and racial, ethnic outsiders. One more aspect of this outside-in kingdom, moral outsiders, moral failures, So at one level, we could include everybody in this genealogy in that list, right? Everybody's a moral failure except Jesus. But there are some particularly shocking examples, okay? So Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Jacob had 12 sons, you know, later named Israel. I mean, what about Joseph? I mean, his brothers were jealous, They're so cruel, they sold him as a slave. 
you know, but he became one of the most famous, powerful men in Israelite history. He's not even in the genealogy except as one of the brothers of Judah. Quickly referenced at the end of verse 2. Instead, it's Judah who's one of Jesus' ancestors. Judah was a moral train wreck. Again, read Genesis 38. I'm going to give you a little summary here, okay? And we're going to be really unsentimental here at Christmas. Reading Genesis 38 is like reading a raunchy tabloid, except it's true. Judah sees a Canaanite woman he likes. He takes her. He has three sons by her. He takes a wife for his firstborn son. Her name is Tamar, this woman in verse 3. Firstborn son was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord put him to death. So at that time, there was something practiced called Leverite marriage. The dead husband's brother would take his widow and marry her to give her children, to preserve her brother's name and heritage. I know it's a little weird, but, you know, that's for another time. So Judah says to Onan, his secondborn, go do that. Onan appeared to comply, but he didn't want to dilute the inheritance to his own sons. So when he went into her, he would waste his semen on the ground. Oh, all these wonderful euphemisms. Merry Christmas, you know? All right. So that was wicked in God's sight. So he put Onan to death. So Judah sees two of his sons die. Sheila was his third son. Maybe he was Australian. Um, he was younger. So Judah says to Tamar, you know, wait till Sheila grows up. He's, he's like, is this woman cursed? I mean, like two guys die. Maybe my third son's going to die too. So keep him away from Tamar. Judah's wife dies. Father's wife dies. So Tamar decides to get back at her father-in-law who's dooming her to a life of barren widowhood. She dresses like a prostitute plants herself on the road that Judah's traveling on. He turns aside and propositions her. He suggests a price, a young goat from the flock. She agrees and asks for a pledge that he'll follow through and send it. Hey, how about your signet and cord? You know, probably like hanging around his neck, the thing that would seal letters from him, identifying him, and your staff. And then you send the goat when you get home, and then I'll give you your stuff back. He agrees, the transaction is complete, and sure enough, Tamar gets pregnant. Three months later, Judah is informed that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. Judah says, are you ready for this? Bring her out and let her be burned. Like she deserves judgment. And then she comes out and says, oh, I'm pregnant by the owner of these things. So Judah obviously backs down from his righteous indignation. And when she gave birth, who was in her womb? Look at Matthew 1, 3. Perez and Zerah. So much for Hallmark movies and snow globes. This is messy, shocking, stomach-turning stuff. Moral outsiders included in Jesus' genealogy. So what's the point? Well, this world is a moral cesspool. And God is not ashamed to be identified with it. 
He's not afraid to dive into it and get his hands dirty to clean it up. He came to rescue and redeem us from our mess. Our hearts, not just in Genesis 38, our hearts are a moral cesspool without him. Our hearts are idol factories. Would you want some, let alone all, of your darkest thoughts displayed on this screen with your name at the top right? I wouldn't. (laughs) But God has seen and known every single one of them. We can't hide anything from him. Nobody's getting away with anything. Aren't you glad that he's willing to dive into our mess and clean us up? You can't make God blush. But we can make him bleed. And he willingly did. To wash us white as snow. So God is not sentimental and clueless to the harsh realities in this, his fallen world. God is not ashamed. He's not ashamed to be identified with us. He came to love us, his dysfunctional family. Point number three. So in order to become our redeemer, he had to become like us. Again, he did so willingly. The genealogy is testimony to his willingness. He willingly became our kinsman redeemer. Okay, He took on flesh and blood. Jesus took on flesh and blood to become our next of kin so that he could buy us back from our slavery and our vulnerability. So he had to become one of us in order to deliver us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share... just us people, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, how else could he die? How else could the Son of God die unless he took on flesh and blood? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to atone for our sins, to absorb the righteous wrath of God so that we could be given his mercy and blessing. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus has identified with us, us crazy dysfunctional people. So he came from perfection, perfect loving society. He didn't have to come, you know, within a 10-foot pole or 10 million light-year foot pole of us. He could have just justly destroyed us and washed his hands of us. But instead, he claims our dysfunction as his own problem. He takes our problem as his problem. He identified with us to make us new, to make us crazy sinners his family. There's just all kinds of hope in this. I I ran into this quote on Friday by Sam Albury. He says, The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. 
So the mess in the genealogy indicates that he comes not for the good people, as if there are any. He comes to make us messy people his own. Anybody happy about that this morning? So again, we can't dig into all the stories behind all these names, but here's another little helpful thing that's going on here that's interesting. Look at verses 7 and 8, just as a, an example. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Josaphat, Josaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah. So there, there's a prayer that ran across a while ago by a guy named Thomas Fuller. He was a 17th century British pastor, and he wrote in response to what he discovered in these two seemingly obscure verses. He wrote this, Lord, I find the genealogy of my Savior strangely checkered with four remarkable changes in four immediate generations. Rehoboam begat Abijah. That is, a bad father begat a bad son. Abijah begat Asa. That is, a bad father begat a good son. Asa begat Jehoshaphat. That is, a good father begat a good son. Jehoshaphat begat Joram. That is, a good father, a bad son. And then he says this, I see, Lord, from hence that my father's piety cannot be handed on. That is bad news for me, because apparently he had a pious father. And in his humility, he's saying this. But I see also that impiety is not hereditary. That is good news for my son. So fatherhood matters, but your father's sin doesn't doom you to the same. Good news. Jesus is the Savior of new creations, new beginnings. He can dive into the mess and bring us out. Fatherhood matters. On the other hand, good fatherhood is important, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Each generation must come to this Jesus and embrace him. You cannot rely on your parents' faith. So Christmas is all about taking messed up outsiders and bringing them into God's forever family. And this family is led by the best father in the universe and the best older brother that you can ever dream of. So none of us should think that we can't be a part of this family. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Like, what? Of course not. Didn't you read, like, all the mess in this thing? Who is? Nobody is. We're not qualified by our own merits. We're qualified by the rescue and redeemer's merits. His merits are what matter. So all of, all of this, this genealogy, everything it's pointing to, makes abundantly clear whose resume really matters. Not yours, not mine, but Jesus' resume is what really matters. So last point, Jesus' resume, resume and ours. So think about your resume for a minute, or maybe your LinkedIn profile. You know, people hire writers to really make a, you know, LinkedIn profile that'll pop. So if you were fired or let go from a job in the past, how do you portray that to your next potential employer in your interview? Well, we came to a mutual agreement to part ways, you know, like, 
What references do you put on your resume? The superior that gave you a bad review? You know, we want objective representation, you know, both sides. No, we don't do that. How about if you were getting introduced to speak at some event or some seminar? Do you want them to make you look good in that intro? Your accomplishments, your awards and successes, so that people will be impressed and listen to you, right? I mean, do you want your embarrassing family history or your failures or your shameful moments to be included? Like, you know, that high school suspension you had for drinking or some misdemeanor that you had or speeding ticket or something? No, that's not how we do resumes. Well, in the ancient world, genealogical records were scrupulously kept to establish legitimacy, inheritance rights, other rights and privileges. It was actually a serious matter of identity. Who is this person? Their heritage, their pedigree. So genealogies function in the ancient Near Eastern culture kind of like a resume. In fact, people were known to tweak their genealogies to make themselves look better. Herod did this, expunging the stuff that was embarrassing or made him look bad. And here, King Jesus' resume is filled with mess and dysfunction. Because he wants us to know who he is and what he came for. Talk about a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel. Him dying for all kinds of people. He is not ashamed of his family. So our resume, my resume, filled with sin and mess. Jesus' resume filled with righteousness and glory and beauty and love. And what does he do? He takes our sin and mess and gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was sinless. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Christmas is all about. That's really good news. So, Merry Christmas. We're going to sing joy to the world as we appropriately should. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth, each of us, receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. <coughs> he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So let me pray and then we'll sing it and we'll go enjoy lunch together. Oh God, this gospel is better, better news than we can even get our minds and hearts around so often. And ah, we are so often just ho-hum about it. Would you please awaken our hearts to be thrilled with who you are, what you were like, revealed to us ultimately, most clearly, in the sending, the coming of your Son willingly, 
diving into the cesspool of this world to make us clean and wash us white as snow by his blood shed for us. Please cause the song of joy to well up and overflow this Christmas. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.